Hello, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. It's been a while. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today we're going to go a little off script, as I wanted to tackle a topic about the future rather than the past. Now, because of this, there aren't any legends yet, but one can imagine that someday there will be some great stories. So let's go where no one has gone before and explore the idea of surgery in space in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Surgery has always been a part of the explorations of frontiers, as brave men and women push into unexplored territory in extreme environments. Whether that is the frozen wastelands of Antarctica, or in submarines in the depths of the oceans, or elsewhere, by their very nature, they are far away from medical attention in dangerous situations. This inevitably leads to the need for surgery, typically of the urgent or emergent kind. These locations are remote, but what is more remote than outer space, the final frontier? How will we handle the inevitable incident of a surgical event on a space mission? Today, we'll start with a great story from the past of surgery, done in one of the most remote environments on Earth, and then look at what surgery in the ultimate remote environment, space, would be like. I was quite surprised at the amount of literature available on the topic, and how much people have thought about the challenges and solutions that might arise. Even more amazingly, there have even been experiments to test these theories, and we'll cover those too. So let's go back in time to the famous Shackleton expedition to the Antarctic. This was known as the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, which had the goal of becoming the first to cross Antarctica from sea to sea via the Pole, as Roald Amundsen had won the race to be the first to the Pole in December of 1911. So the expedition began in 1914, and their ship, the Endurance, was soon trapped in the pack ice and eventually was crushed and sunk. The crew had to spend the winter on the ice, and then took lifeboats to the remote, windswept, barren Elephant Island, which is where our story picks up. Of the 22 men left on the island, Shackleton and five crew members had gone further to try to reach help, two were doctors, Alexander Macklin and James McElroy. They did a few minor surgeries, including pulling teeth without any anesthetic and lancing an abscess on the buttock of a crew member. But the worst case was Percy Blackborough, who had developed frostbite of the toes of his left foot, which required amputation. Luckily, a small amount of chloroform was found in the medical kit. Now, if you remember from episode 13, the story of chloroform, it is a notoriously tricky drug to administer in the best circumstances. Their operating theater consisted of two overturned lifeboats set on low stone walls, which was also the shelter of the entire crew. The only heat came from an iron cooking stove, which burned penguin pelts and seal blubber. Temperature affected the vaporization of the chloroform, adding another layer of difficulty. At least chloroform was not flammable, unlike ether. But on the morning of June 15, 1916, the two doctors proceeded, operating on a table built from a bunch of nut boxes covered with blankets. Amazingly, they were able to adequately anesthetize the patient and perform the amputations in 55 minutes with a full recovery. Shackleton was able to reach a whaling station in South Georgia, and the crew were rescued. There have been other incidents of operations done under dire circumstances, both within submarines and at Antarctic bases. See episode 6 on doctors that have operated on themselves. There's a great story there. These places had doctors and laypeople who had to operate without any outside help with minimal equipment. And as we push further and further out into space, the crews will have to be self-reliant and have better and better capabilities. Flights beyond the low Earth orbit, which is where the International Space Station, or ISS, resides, are known as exploration-class missions. This would include the Moon, Mars, asteroids, and beyond. The return time from the ISS is about 24 hours, but from a moon base it's several days, and a Mars mission could be up to nine months, so evacuation is not possible. Carnegie Mellon professor James Antaki said, quote, 
based on statistical probability, there is a high likelihood of trauma or a medical emergency on a deep space mission, end quote. In fact, NASA predicts an average of one major medical disaster requiring serious intervention during a three-year deep space mission, such as to Mars and back, with six crew members. So the bottom line is, not if, but when this will happen as we continue our space exploration. But let's look at some of the issues of surgery in a weightless environment, or what we'll call zero-g. Imagine trying to perform a procedure where there's no gravity. What will be affected? How will the remote isolation without communication with Earth-based help, a closed air system, sensitive electronics, and minimal space change how surgery can be done? So it's one thing to think about these issues, but it's quite another to study them. No surgery has ever been performed on humans during spaceflight. For experiments on animals or simulators, it's too expensive to actually send them into orbit, so parabolic flight was invented to simulate weightlessness. This was first attempted in the early 1950s by the famous test pilots Scott Crossfield and Chuck Yeager. Known as reduced gravity aircraft or vomit comets, these are fixed-wing aircraft that follow a parabolic flight path, and at certain points the aircraft and its contents are in freefall, which gives the sensation of weightlessness, referred to as a microgravity environment, although that's not technically accurate. This gives about 25 seconds of simulated zero-g out of 65 seconds of flight to conduct experiments and shoot movie scenes, for example, the movie Apollo 13. If you are brave or crazy enough, the experience is available commercially, so if you have the money, you can give it a try. Now, the first step before operating is, of course, making a diagnosis. But beyond the history and physical, the weight and space restrictions of spacecraft make our modern tests like complex blood tests, x-rays, CT scans, and MRIs impractical. The most valuable diagnostic tool, then, will be ultrasound. One issue, though, is that ultrasound is somewhat dependent on gravity to locate free air and fluids. Think about the conditions where that's important, like finding free air under the diaphragm due to a perforated gut, or air fluid levels in bowel obstruction, or air in the chest from a pneumothorax like in a punctured lung. Another issue is whether organs will shift around, changing locations and making visualization more tricky. But studies have shown that ultrasound can evaluate a number of conditions in zero-g, and can even be used to guide a needle to aspirate or suck up fluid in the abdomen. In fact, there are new ultrasound technologies to diagnose illness during spaceflight and even treat patients. For example, the direct high-intensity focused ultrasound uses waves to stop internal bleeding without having to resort to invasive procedures. Low-intensity pulses may be used to either help heal bone fractures or proactively slow the rate of bone loss, which is a huge issue for astronauts because bone needs weight-bearing stimuli to grow and maintain itself, which is lost in microgravity. And in what will be a bit of a theme, a lot of these new ultrasound technologies have the potential to be spin-offs for terrestrial applications. Okay, once it's been determined that surgery is necessary, the next issue is the setup. What all of the studies on operating in zero-g comment on is the importance of restraints. I imagine it would be hard to operate if you keep floating away from the patient. And not just the surgeon, but the patient, the equipment, even the drapes used to cover the field. Just putting on the surgical gloves takes some thinking about, as they might drift off before you put them on. Solutions include magnetic pads for instruments, Velcro for fixation of supplies, flypaper for suture ends, and styrofoam blocks for sharp items. And at least the PrEP, which is that antiseptic solution that is painted on the operative field to prevent infections, stays on the skin due to surface tension. The next issue to consider is anesthesia. A number of problems arise here. Inhaled gases can't be used due to the risk of leaks contaminating the closed-loop environment of the ship. Spinal anesthesia depends on gravity pulling the injected medication down to the nerves to be affected, so that won't work. What we're left with is either intravenous medications for general anesthesia, meaning going to sleep, or regional blocks, meaning injecting medication into certain nerves to numb the area that they feed. 
This works on limbs, but can't be used for the abdomen or chest. Another issue to think about for the setup is contamination in both directions. The air of the International Space Station has been thoroughly studied and bacterial and fungal counts are routinely done. Microorganisms from skin and particulates have been found at counts higher than conventional operating rooms by a factor of 10. This is of great concern to space programs as these can cause opportunistic infections, let alone contaminate an operative field or surgical wound. But I did learn a great new word that describes the organic particulate shed from the skin. Scurf. That could be useful for Scrabble. Now the opposite problem, contamination of the station by blood, pus, or other fluids that can float away during surgery, is a risk to the other inhabitants, and we'll get to that in a bit in our discussion about specific surgery modalities. Alright, once the setup is done and the patient is asleep and it's time to operate, what are some other issues? What types of surgery would be possible? Well, certainly laparoscopic surgery has obvious advantages, like having smaller incisions and quicker recovery time. Also, since the operating is done inside the abdomen, the issue of contamination and fluid management is covered, as everything is contained. One question that has been explored is how to visualize the organs during laparoscopy. How will the intra-abdominal contents behave in zero-g? Well, an experiment was done with pigs to compare insufflation, which is filling the belly with gas as we do here on Earth, compared to no air and abdominal wall retraction. It turned out that the weightless environment actually made the abdomen go from a flattened oval shape to a more rounded shape, which increased the space inside. And the use of gas was shown to be the best method for visualization inside the abdomen. The other interesting thing that came out of these studies is that fluids and debris in the cavity tend to become internally cohesive, meaning they're sticking together, and form fluid domes that adhere to the abdominal wall because of surface tension, which keeps them out of the field of view. But laparoscopic surgery requires a great deal of skill and practice, which may not be available on a spaceship, but has many benefits as I've just laid out. So some have suggested a sort of compromise called hand-assisted laparoscopic surgery, or HALS for short. Although I don't know if you want a system called HALS on a spaceship, for those of you that know the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is just as it sounds. The surgeon inserts a hand into the air-filled abdominal cavity, while the other hand works laparoscopic instruments. This is used on Earth for some complex procedures, but one can imagine that there would be benefit to giving yourself a hand in simpler operations. My favorite part of an article published on an experiment done in Zero-G on this is the description of the simulator used on the parabolic flight. Quote, Intestines were simulated by stuffing pantyhose with cotton and sewing them in such a manner as to provide the look and feel of small and large intestines. A mildly inflamed retrocecal appendix was simulated by fixing a dog toy of appropriate texture and size to the base of the cecum, end quote. Unfortunately, no pictures were provided. Anyway, the simulated house was successful uh, for both experienced surgeons and a physician astronaut. Now, another interesting experiment involving pigs was to demonstrate the ability to stent a ureter, meaning to place a tube in the structure that drains urine from the kidney to the bladder in zero-g. Now, this might be particularly relevant as it is hypothesized that astronauts are at increased risk for forming kidney stones, possibly due to bone mineral loss and fluid shifts due to microgravity. So again, the lack of x-ray, or in this case lithotripsy, which is a machine that breaks up stones using sound waves, adds a new challenge. So ultrasound and flexible endoscopes, meaning tiny cameras, were used with great success. Interestingly, this experiment also commented on the importance of restraints and the fact that all non-fixed equipment had to be handheld to avoid migration. A simple thing, but without the experiments, it maybe wouldn't have been thought of. Another problem was the use of irrigation fluid, which tended to pass along the instrument and float away in the air, and so an assistant had to catch the liberated fluid drops with a sponge. 
And now that leads us to open surgery, meaning not using cameras to peer inside. Now obviously the biggest issue will be controlling fluids and avoiding contamination. A number of experiments have looked at ways to create a hood of sorts called a surgical overhead canopy to place over the operative field. Now, issues here would be to keep it clear enough to see and keep it from collapsing. From laminar flow of air to filling them with a clear fluid, there are many possibilities. This would be particularly useful if there's uncontrolled arterial bleeding. Now that leads to a whole other topic, the management of trauma, which is huge and certainly a possibility in space. Now I won't get into too much detail, as this is very complex, but interestingly, the International Space Station currently has an advanced life support pack, which allows astronauts to deliver advanced cardiac life support and advanced trauma life support. Now whether this could be the bridge between resuscitation and stabilization to definitive surgery on the ship is a whole other question. Other concerns would be things like transfusion. Where will the blood come from? How long can it be stored? Artificial blood products would be especially useful in this scenario. And there are other parts of surgery that we take for granted, which have to be considered in a spaceship. Electrocautery, see podcast 7 on the Bovi, can't be used due to too much radio frequency interference. All infusion lines and bags have to be degassed to avoid injecting air bubbles and used with pressure pumps, as there is no gravity-induced flow. Drainage tubes like chest tubes and Foley catheters see podcast 26 on the Foley catheter, have to be short and large in diameter to mitigate surface tension and capillary action. One paper actually did mention the Heimlich flutter valve described in podcast 18 on Henry Heimlich, as it is a one-way valve for chest tubes and less dependent on suction for drainage. Now, bone fractures can't be treated with plaster, which is too impractical in space, or fiberglass, which has too much off-gassing for a closed environment, and so splinting with flexible aluminum splints have to be used. And finally, there is the issue of recovery. It is known that spaceflight is associated with suppression of the immune system, and the harsh environment of space entails an increased amount of radiation. Both of these things can affect wound healing and put the patient at risk for increased wound infections, not to mention the increased bacterial load on the air of a ship. And even how medications, for example antibiotics, might behave in a body in zero-g are unknown given the way fluids in the body shift around, which is different than on Earth. There are a number of other solutions being thought of to prevent surgical emergencies from happening in the first place such as prophylactic surgery before space flight. For example, doing appendectomies, removal of the appendix, and cholecystectomies, removal of the gallbladder, has been considered for astronauts to avoid having to operate on or evacuate an astronaut for appendicitis or cholecystitis. One frequently cited example is from 1985, when a Soviet cosmonaut on the Salyut, an early space station, developed right lower quadrant pain and preparations were begun to evacuate him on suspicion of appendicitis. It turned out to be a kidney stone in his ureter and so the evacuation was aborted. However, in 1982, a cosmonaut was evacuated from the Salyut because of suspicion of appendicitis that turned out to be inflammation of the prostate, or prostatitis. These examples show the very real possibility of urgent medical issues arising in space. In fact, the Australian's Antarctic program has had mandatory appendectomies for its winter expeditions since 1950, when a doctor had to be evacuated for acute appendicitis. Current thinking, however, seems to be that the low risk and possible non-operative management of these diseases make the inherent risks of prophylactic surgery not worthwhile. That may change, however, once we start attempting true deep space missions. And other creative solutions are being looked at for the issue of storage. For example, the number of medications that may be needed both for surgical and non-surgical issues is huge. So it makes more sense to store medicines as substrates and create them as needed. This would reduce shelf life issues and allow the astronauts to make new medicines that might be invented after leaving Earth. 3D printing of surgical instruments for long-duration space missions has also been considered in the literature, 
with comparisons against conventionally manufactured plastic instruments in surgical experiments with good success. This would allow reduced storage space and the creation of instruments as needed. Now, both the ability to create medicines and instruments as needed has some interesting applications for remote locations on Earth, too. And I wonder if we'll see that more often in harder-to-reach areas or in disaster zones. But one huge spin-off benefit of research on space medicine and surgery has been telemedicine. This was initially developed to monitor astronauts in space. At the beginning of space exploration, it was limited to monitoring vitals only, as no one knew how the lack of gravity would affect circulation and breathing. Answering these questions was one of the main reasons for sending up animals into space first. In fact, the technology that we use for monitoring and telemetry in intensive care units could not have existed without space medicine research. But as the space program continued and trips of longer duration were considered, a quick return to Earth would not be possible. So the ability to not only monitor biometric data, but also engage in at least rudimentary guided medical treatment by non-physicians has been looked at. Space agencies like NASA have been crucial in the development of telemedicine here on Earth, which are used to link remote sites with leading physicians and facilities as well as the use of 3D models to analyze the body, which can be used for spacecraft crews traveling in the ISS, Mars, or other planets where specialists aren't available. This is important as the lag time for something like telerobotics, see podcast 24 on robots and surgery, even to the ISS in low Earth orbit, is about two seconds, which could be crippling. So instead of guiding a physician astronaut or even operating via robot from Earth, we could instead plan a medical procedure on Earth using 3D technology, then send the plan to an astronaut physician to perform. They could even practice in virtual reality or possibly project a computer image onto the patient to guide the doctor during the operation. You can imagine the possibilities on Earth for that kind of technology too. But what is also interesting is that even other technologies from space indirectly related to surgery have had positive benefits. For example, work on heat pipes helped develop the technology to wick away dangerous heat during brain surgery from cautery instruments to protect delicate brain tissue. The NeuroArm, the world's first robot capable of performing surgery inside magnetic resonance machines, was created through technology from the Canadarm, a space robot that performed heavy lifting and maintenance on board the ISS. And you may remember that ESOP, one of the types of robotic arms used in surgery, came about through collaboration with NASA. Michael DeBakey, the famous cardiac surgeon, worked with NASA engineers to develop a life-saving heart assist device for coronary patients based on the space shuttle fuel pump called the Micromed DeBakey Ventricular Assist Device. So the example of polar surgery at the beginning of the episode shows that humans will rise to the occasion and show creativity in finding solutions. But the requirements for Explorer-class spaceflight will have to continue to push technological advances to meet the needs of autonomous space surgery. This push will benefit those of us that are earthbound. I hope that we as a society will continue to support NASA and other space agencies to continue to fund this type of research that can directly benefit us. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Maybe one day we'll be talking about the history of the first surgery in space. But for now, the next episode, we will cover one of the biggest names in surgical history, Dr. William Halstead. Not only was he one of the founders of modern surgery in the U.S., but he was also a cocaine addict. Definitely one that anyone interested in the history of surgery should know about, so don't miss it. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.